You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. If you went to college or high school in the 80s, and I was lucky enough to do both, this my guest today wrote a song that, you know, you, you made out to, or you slow dance to, or back in the 80s, we would actually slow dance while on the dance floor. You got lucky to, and he's had an amazing career. He's an accomplished actor. I heard he's a furniture collector. And my guest is my guest is Gary Kemp. How you doing, Gary? Good, thanks. Good, yeah. How are you? Good. Uh, so, what's with the furniture? You collect furniture? I heard. Uh, well, that's an obscure one. I didn't think I'd be. Uh, no, I um. When I very first, I first, uh, my I grew up in a council flat, which is like public buildings, right? You know, we um, you know, I, my my dad was a printer. You know, we didn't own a single bit of furniture in the house. The only thing we owned in our house growing up was the cat. <laughs> And everything else was on what we call higher purchase, you know, where you pay some, you know, you, you pay monthly for, for whatever you've got. And, um, you know, when I, I, I'd always had a kind of aspiration towards some beautiful things and Victorian furniture and this aesthetic movement that happened in the 1870s around Oscar Wilde and some great designers and William Morris, people like that. And the first thing I ever bought with my first paycheck from Spandau Ballet in, in 83 was a William Morris chair. Everyone went out and bought sports cars. I bought a William Morris chair and I still have... <laughs> that chair now and I of course I was still living with my parents so I put it into storage because I didn't know what to do with it um, but um, and I just got a fascination with all of that period and, and those guys surrounding that the pre-Raphaelites and, and the kind of gang really I've always been quite into sort of youth culture and gang culture and, and believe it or not that's what the pre-Raphaelites were in the arts and crafts movement they were doing things that were upsetting a lot of other people in the industry so I got to ask you, because, you know, the song True, I mean, I'm, I'm 55. So, you know, that came out when I was just starting college. And it's one of those romantic songs. And it's, it's got the sexiness of, let's say, you know, More Than This by Roxy Music. What, how did you go about writing that? Because I know you wrote the song. Was everything, where, where did you get the lyrics from? Okay, let's start from the beginning, really. You know, we were a, we were a cult band. You might know that, you know, from from you know Soho, and we were playing electronica, and and then electronica. But you know, we can go over this. But electronica was was you know from, this is about 1978-79, and our first album was all electronica, uh, and and electric, some electric guitars. But but it was a sort of four on the floor. Um, kind of electric punk album and then and then we did and then we did a bit of funk in the second album with chart number one i came over to new york for the first time ever and i went to kiss fm um for an interview and i think they they were a bit shocked when they found out we were white when we walked in you know because chart number one was getting played on all the black stations um and that was an up out and out sort of funk record really with electronic drums on it um so I was always changing and moving and trying, and, and as, as in Britain, things became more and more conventional, you'd want to do something different. So in 1983, I wanted to write riffs and I wanted to write, or I should say 82 when I wrote that song. And I wanted to write things that were just more song based. Um, and as I say, I'm still living at home in public housing with my parents at this point. I still haven't made a great deal of money in the band, even though we're having hits in the UK and a little bit in Europe. But um, my influence, I, I sort of met, I met this girl and we, we, she started playing lots of Al Green records and Marvin Gaye records. And I, and, and I was thinking, you know, I'd love to be able to write a song like that. You know, that's, that's really, you know, as a, forget writing 
electric riffs and, and 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 great beats you know let's let's me let me try and write a song like one of those guys and that's what true was um she gave me a book um which was lolita by uh, nabokov and uh and i was reading that at the same time i was writing it <clears throat> and there was a couple of lines in there that i really liked which was he he he, he mentioned seaside arms in it she says lolita had seaside arms which i guess meant freckly and there was also another line in there which was about putting a pill on his tongue so i expanded that you know and it became with a pill in my with thrill in my head and a pill on my tongue and take your seaside arms and write the next line and then it became about writing a song about her but without wanting her to know who she was so the line why do i find it hard to write the next line when i want the truth to be said was me sitting there as a songwriter trying to be honest but at the same time only being able to leave little clues like the lolita book so it's such, and you mentioned Marvin Gaye in the song also. Yeah, so I mentioned Marvin Gaye in the song because we were listening to him a lot. So the sax solo, because that's such an integral part of that. Did you, when you wrote the original song as a writer, because I know you wrote a lot of hits, when you write a song, let's say like True, does the sax solo just come in as the band's rehearsing it? Or how did that sax solo yeah, what makes yeah, I mean, listen, if Steve Norman blows a great sax solo on that, but you know, but but also I wrote the kind of there's a chord key change that goes into the sax solo, and I think this was the sax solo sounds very strong because of that. It it changes key, it, it, it modulates, goes into the sax solo, then modulates back to the normal key after the sax solo. So the sax solo has a kind of elevation in it and then i remember we recorded it you know we did that did it the, more, the conventional way you know we put down four or five different um tracks of the sax solo and then comped together the best version you know you take a little few bars from this solo and a few bars from that solo and then you make up a whole solo and steve steve then you know it became a great moment in the set for steve so you know you said where you grew up you grew up in the public housing how did you get into music what sparked your interest well, um, when I was 11, um, my dad took it on himself for some strange reason. He'd seen a, in a furniture store, um, he'd seen, so it wasn't even in a music store. He'd see, it was like, I don't know, maybe a secondhand store. He'd seen a guitar for sale uh, for about five bucks, right? And he, he bought me that for Christmas. And I was a bit disappointed when I woke up Christmas morning because I was hoping for a toy. And, uh, and I ended up getting this guitar. And um, I didn't even think about playing guitar. And it, with it, he bought me a Burt Whedon play in a day book. And Burt Whedon was, was a very sort of famous old guitar player in the 50s and 60s in, in England. And, um, and I remember taking that book and the guitar into my bedroom, which I shared with my brother who ended up in the band, Martin. And... Um, and going and, and learnt, teaching myself these chords in the key of C, and so I had these four chords for if I had a ha if I had a hammer, you know that famous old right. song, and and it was just a basic C A minor F G, and I'm thinking, well, I really love these chords, but I hate that tune. Why don't I just write my own tune over the top? So, and 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 that's and those chords are the exact same chords that you'll find in songs like well, in True 
in every breath you take. I mean, it's a conventional chord sequence, but you can develop it in other ways. Um, and, I, and I ended up writing my own song, and I, a melody, and I went into school and I showed it to my teacher, and he said, well, it's Easter, why don't you write a song about Easter? <laughs> so, so it went something like, Jesus rode through Jericho on his way to the cross. He met blind Bartimaeus, who his sight had lost. And my dad then rushed me down to the train station, local train station, because in the train station in London, they had these booths in those days where you could go in and record on a little record on an acetate record a message to send to a loved one um and um because we didn't have mobile phones then i guess or text or anything (laughs) so i i i but you could they only lasted for a minute so he jammed me in this box and i remember standing sideways because my guitar wouldn't fit otherwise put the money in the slot shut the door, told me to get going, and I recorded the song, but I had to speed up quite fast at the end because the acetate was running out. And um, and that was my first record. <laughs> and then I wrote another song called Alone, and then my, which my mum said I couldn't play to anyone because it was so depressing and it made it, it, people would worry <laughs> about her, my upbringing. But I, I ended up playing them both at a school prize giving when I was 11. And this wonderful man called um, Trevor Huddleston, who was the... Um, the Bishop of Stepney in London, but he was also the head of the anti-apartheid movement. He was there presenting the prizes, and he loved what I did, and he came around to our flat, and he gave me a a cassette recorder, and they'd just come out, and he said, every time you write a song, I want you to send me um, the song to my address, and he really encouraged me. And I remember when he was sitting in my living room uh, on that Thursday evening, and I know it was a Thursday because Top of the Pops was on TV, which was our regular music show in, 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 on, on terrestrial television um, on the BBC. And while he's giving me this cassette recorder, it's sitting in his purple robes, it, to, to my mum's horror in, in, in our flat, <laughs> on TV was Rod Stewart singing Maggie May, and I thought to myself, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I do. It's amazing, you know, when you think about it, how, you know, parents can actually be such a influence. I mean, if it wasn't for the guitar that your dad got you, you wanted to train. If it wasn't for a train, if you got a train instead of a car, you may have not yeah. ever gotten into music. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I wouldn't be standing here in, a, in, in the middle of an American tour uh, talking to you. Right. Um, no, it's, it's uh, there, you know, there was another person that was in my life that was very important, a woman called Anna Scher, who was a, um, she ran a drama club for working class kids um, in our area. And I used to go there and I ended up getting acting roles along with my brother. I did quite a lot of acting on TV and film uh, as, a, as a kid. Um, and she was a great mentor as well. Um, and I think mentors are important for young kids, you know, to encourage them to to see their tan- talent, no matter how small, and, and praise it and nurture it. And, and I, was, I was very fortunate to have those two great people, plus my parents around me. Now, how did you start to form Spandau Ballet? What was your, did you know you were going to be back together that long, or what happened? Well, I was... Um, I was always in bands as a 14, 15 year old, playing with much older guys, playing all kinds of music, you know, like funk and 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 country, and then writing my own songs and trying to sneak them in, uh, Steely Dan covers, that kind of stuff. And then I was into Bowie, of course, but the the only bands I could be in with uh, with that would get me gigs were were with guys who weren't into that at all. You know, they're more into Americana. I um, and then something happened. 
the Sex Pistols happened, and and and, and me and another, a friend of mine, Steve Norman, went to see, and a guy called Steve Dagger went to see the Sex Pistols play very very early gig with Glenn Matlock uh, in Islington, supported by the Clash. It was the first ever Clash gig, and and the Buzzcocks, who had Howard Devoto in the band at that point, and. Um, it changed my life. I went straight into rehearsals the next day with the band I was with. I said, I'm not in the band anymore. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm going to go and form a different band. And when I went back to school, Steve Norman and I got a like-minded bunch of kids together in the school music room. We were 16. This is 1976. And we started forming the band. And that was really uh, Tony Hadley, um, John Keeble, Steve Norman, and, and myself, and plus the other guy, Steve Dagger, he started managing us. <clears throat> the only person to come into it who took another couple of years was my younger brother, who ended up playing bass. So, things then. And, 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 um, and then we, we, we were kind of playing a sort of power pop. Um, you still there, Steve? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, we were playing a kind of power pop music, and uh, and then something else happened. We ended up punk had kind of died, had faded away. I'd got back into sort of being a soul boy and dancing in discos and 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 listening to all kinds of music. Still, Bowie was very very popular for me. And then uh, a young guy called Steve Strange, a Welshman, took over this this club on a Tuesday night down in Soho. Um, um, Tuesday night was a bad night, so he could take out this club, and he had what he called a Bowie night. And in walked the freaks, right? So we all ended up going to this club, and kids were dressing up wildly. You know, glam rock was their kind of connection, um, but also to, dancing to music that was like craft work, you know, a kind of new German electronica music, rocks, early Roxy music, Iggy Pop. Um, and we said, this is it, this is, you know, this is the next big thing that's going to happen in the UK, you know, we had, we've had, we've had psychedelia, we've had, we've had uh, glam rock, we've had punk, you know, and they were all based around clubs, every one of those movements had a club, you know, I can tell you, you know, there was where Pink Floyd started, the psychedelia, was the UFO club on Tottenham Court Road, and that was the beginning of psychedelia, and, you know, punk started with the Roxy, and, you know, you had to have a club, here we are in this club, and we can be the next band here. So we changed our name, became Spandau Ballet. We bought a synthesizer. We, uh, I wrote a whole bunch of new songs with four on the floor bass drum. And we literally became the house band. And we never played conventional gigs. We just used to play warehouses and boats and all our crowd, that crowd, that glam, weird, weird, you know, dressed up crowd all followed us around everywhere. And so we ended up with a, with a huge record contract out of it. And, um, and our first single, it's cut a long story short, uh, went straight top five in the UK. Now you, you got the big, you know, you came popular in the UK. What was your breaking point in America? What do you think broke you in America? Well, you know, as I say, our first time we went to America, um, we decided to take all those kids with us. So we went and played the underground club in um, uh, downtown New York, uh, which was just below the uh, Andy Warhol's offices for Interview Magazine. And um, we brought over all these students, fashion students from from St. Martin's College in London, and 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 a load of friends to model their clothes. And we we did we did a show there where we brought our own DJ, Robert Elms, Steve Strange came, um, and we ended up with this what we were called the Blitz Kids. I think the whole sort of all of us were known as in the press at that point because the club was called Blitz, and. Um, 
and we did this gig and we ended up on the front of women's wear daily <laughs> which we thought was great because we thought if we're going to break break it we want to break it differently uh and and um but it never it was just a cult thing really for, for new york at that point um and then, as I said, we went back to New York with chart number one uh, a year later when, when that was getting some play on, on, on Kiss FM with Frankie Crocker. And then, you know, really, it was MTV that did it. And, and, and as MTV broke across America, our album and the true single came out. And, um, and that changed everything for us. And that was 83. And then the next thing we know, you know, K-Rock are playing it solidly. We go to LA and we've got queues around the block to try and get in to see us to stop for signing records at Tower Records. And, uh, and that was really it for us. And that obviously that, but it broke us in it. But for people who didn't know our background, they saw us as being a blue eyed soul band. But up until that point, we, we hadn't really been a blue eyed soul band. It was just me trying a new experiment. Now, you did play Soul Train, I believe. Yeah, I was very proud to play, play, play Soul Train. I was, a, I was a huge lover of soul music when I was a kid. And, um, and yeah, we were, I think we were about the fourth white band to play it, next to sort of Daryl Hall, Elton John and Bowie. And anything Bowie did was, was, was uh, you know, uh, was validated as far as I was concerned. And it was a great thrill to play Soul Train. Now you started. We did it. We, yeah, we we did that with the next single after True. We didn't do that with True. I think we did it with Only When You Leave, which was off of the Parade album. Now you start. You start. You hit. You break it in America. And the one thing I noticed a lot about of bands from England and overseas is when they break in their own country, they also break in internationally. What was it like for when you guys started breaking internationally and the touring schedule? Because, you know, you're all young, good-looking guys. You're all dressed to the nines. Which, who, who picked out your clothes? Oh, we did everything. You know, we, you know, when, all the whole look when we first started was, was really what was being worn on the street with, with fat kids. You know, kids were quite daring in those days. I mean, I think kids are really straight now, but in those days it was really wild and, and, and they would find, they would make things themselves. They would um, get people to design things for them, you know, maybe, you know, like mates who were at, uh, at fashion college or they'd find things from thrift, thrift stores, you know. Um, so we did everything. We always picked everything. You know, we never had a stylist once. Now, internationally, you start blowing up. And what is it like for you? Because as you said, you grew up in a, in a place where there was no furniture. And all of a sudden, I'm sure you're getting on private jets. You're getting the carte blanche. I mean, your guys are rock stars. I mean, what was that like? For, and how did you acclimate to that? Well, you know, it's hard work at the same time, right? So you're doing a lot of work. You know, you're promoting the records. You're doing interviews every day. You know, some people in the band get to party a lot. You know, I was always, I, all my downtime was about writing the next album. Um, I think, you know, we were enjoying ourselves, obviously. But, but you know, going on stage was, you know, we were good players and, and the show was everything to us. And no one would go on stoned. No one would, you know, everyone would wait until after the gig to party. You know, it was, I think, the most important thing. But, it, but, you know, the 80s were a great time for British bands. And there was a great op opportunity and a great thrill for us internationally. And we were, you know, as I say, working class kids never get that opportunity to travel like that. But I think the fact that my brother was in the band kept kept us two really down to earth. You know, we, we were a band that kept our feet on the ground, I think, you know, thinking a lot about, you know, thinking about we were having fun but we also think about it as a business at the same time you know you have to 
you, you know you you know how risky it can be it can be here one day gone the next now what was it like for you for the fact that as you said you had to write all the songs you were the chief songwriter did you feel the pressure to always come up with something big and did you communicate with the band at all about the sound and the direction you wanted to go in I think what happens is that you write for the kind of band and venues that you're playing right so at the beginning we were playing clubs so we wrote club music um, then once when we were when I was doing the sort of true per album I was thinking you know in the parade album I was thinking about theaters you know the, we're playing theaters when we came to the through the barricades album you know which didn't do well in America we changed labels and it never even got you know I, don't, I think it barely got released I know our last album didn't you know we our focus started to go more towards Europe and Australia at that point and um, uh, the through the barricades album was written as an arena um, as arena songs because that's where we were playing you know and I saw that when I'm sitting writing a song like Through the Backers I'm thinking I can hear this in an arena um, <clears throat> and that's not in a cynical way that's in an opportunistic way that's in a wow what a chance to you know now I can write things really big and also because the band had a much bigger energy because we were playing live a lot and become much more guitar orientated um, so that you know I took that as uh, you know that helped me write the next set of songs and through the barricades was was i wrote in ireland so it ended up being about the sort of troubles in belfast but it could have been about i mean when the wall came down it became about berlin you know and and uh, and it got played on a lot of news programs at that point so when what caused the breakup you broke up it was after a, you know you had success was it just something you all wanted to go in your own ways or it was just something well, I think the last album was the last album was difficult you know I was I think I was getting bored of just writing for the same band and um, I think um, I think there was you know Europe was very successful but there was an element of frustration that we we uh, the last couple of albums didn't do well in America for us um, I think um, I think we felt that the eight is coming to an end there was a lot of different changes going on you know people were getting into club music dance music the dj culture um less <clears throat> and there was going to be a moment when it, we would we would struggle um and i i enjoyed writing the last album but i think that there was a lot of personal problems between us all um you know i think i took too much control over the last album you know i did you know very definitive demos and wanted it to sound that way you know and it wasn't as flexible as it had been in the past and that was really me kind of wanting to take more and more control which wasn't a good thing and um and it was a very and i then also my brother and i were shooting the craze movie uh right in the middle of that about the cray twins you know which became very popular um and we um so we had uh, i was slightly off the ball there and i think that pissed off some of the band members and so we you know we decided to take a break and when i took the break i ended up getting the bodyguard movie in hollywood i ended up not wanting to do the band anymore um i just thought you know what i don't i don't i don't really want to do the band anymore i've, I've kind of exhausted myself with music um you know here's an opportunity to do some more acting and and, and i lived in hollywood for three years and and then, of course, we ended up in a legal battle over publishing, which is what everyone, so many bands end up in, and uh, and that and that went all the way through to two, 
to the year 2000. So all the way through the 90s, that that destroyed us. And it was a it was um, a very difficult time for me. And having three members of the band taking me to court over the songwriting royalties. Um, but you know, I didn't lose, and um, and and I never thought we'd ever play again. Um, and then in about 2006, I was mixing and restoring some live footage of us playing in in, in an arena in England from 1987 to go out on DVD. And I thought, my God, we were such a great band, you know. We must have more in us, you know. Why can't we try and get together? And it took about five years for, for me to... Well, it took a few years for me to convince the other three members to, to, to give it a go. My brother wanted to. And eventually Tony, I got Tony the singer to come on board. And, um, and we ended up doing you know, a really big tour in 2009 of arenas in, in Europe and Australia. And it was very successful. And we, we did some new music. And uh, you know, then again, and, and about four years ago, we did the same thing. We popped over to America. We played, played the Beacon in New York. Now down near you, and uh, and it was it was successful. But we always have our trials and tribulations, Pantel Valley. Uh, you know what it's like. It's not about the music; it's about the individuals concerned. And we we often rub each other up the wrong way. Well, you got to play Live Aid. Just you know, it's funny because Live Aid now, because of Bohemian Rhapsody, people are actually getting an awareness of what Live Aid was. I lived outside. I lived outside Philadelphia at the time, and it was in JFK. I didn't go though. And I know you played overseas. What was what was that day like? I mean, was there just an energy that was the biggest energy for a show you saw? I know you played a short set, but what was that like? Well, everyone played a short set. Everyone played 15 minutes or whatever it was. Um, the day was incredible, but we knew it was going to be because the most incredible day any one of us had had who was there was making the record and um, and having all those really competitive, successful British bands, new British bands in the same studio. The funny thing is, when we made that record uh, before, on, on the Christmas of, in, in 84, um, we were all cynical about why was this Irish post-punk band in the room, you know? U2, because U2 meant nothing to any of us in 1984. Um, you know, they'd just been kicking around since 1978 playing the same old punk music. And uh, and then, of course, little did we know that by this following summer, they would be, be along with Queen, one of the two bands who would steal the show completely. Um, and, and, and go on to bigger success. But um, it was a great day. You know, there was a feeling of camaraderie and a feeling of power you know i i think there was a feeling of power throughout everybody had that you know because before democracy just meant putting a tick in a box every four years and um and now suddenly we could do something that would that would force the government to make some changes and would rise ride over what the government wanted to do um, and there was a real sense of power to the people that Geldof gave everybody. And that to, but, but for me, just as a fan, to be hanging out backstage with, you know, Townsend and Bowie and, 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 you know, a lot of them had become my friends in the years, but to have them all there and Sting and, the, and Queen um, was, was something I, you know, we, all of us, every one of us, even McCartney, and I've spoken to McCartney about it, you know, and he was, it's, even all of everybody involved says it's one of the best days they ever experienced in their music careers. 
Now, you had mentioned the craze, and it's funny. when I saw the craze when it came out at the Roxy in Philadelphia because it was an art house type movie, as they would call it. How did that movie come about? Did they, did they, yeah. did they pursue you for that, or did you have to audition? No, we didn't audition. It was, it was, um, you know, these are two gangsters that were ripped from the fifties and sixties, phenomenally famous in in the in the UK. Uh, twins called Ronnie and Reggie Cray, and um, and there was always people talking about making their life story. Roger Daltrey had the rights to a particular biographical book for years. Um, we ended up buying those rights off him um, with. For, for the well, the producer of the film did, and and I think we were a concept. The producers that, that made the craze had done some videos for Spandau Ballet. We knew them as friends. They had this idea that Martin and I would 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 work really well in in in, in the movie. You know, we we'd been actors before, and we took it on board. And I think there was a lot of cynicism at first. You know, the idea of two pop stars playing them. But, you know, we did all our research, you know, we went to, to I met Ronnie in prison, um, you know, we spoke to all the relatives, we, we did, you know, we, the script was really clever, it was very operatic, um, it, it was slightly heightened, and, and it focused on the women that surrounded the craze, which I thought was a very interesting tact, and, um, and we, it worked, it became one of the British, biggest British movies ever at that time. And, and and ran for four weeks in the West End. I mean, and and still gets played all the time everywhere. In fact, sometimes when I come into America now with the immigration, they'll recognize me more for the craze for Spandau Ballet. <laughs> now, do you think it helped with the acting because you acted as a kid and also because videos back then, you know, when MTV was big, were like a small movie project. Do you think that helped you acclimate to getting more comfortable again on camera? Yeah, I'm sure it did. You know, we were the whole our generation of, of, of musicians were very, very comfortable on camera, um, and I think the uh, you know I did six years as a as a kid doing doing acting. The kind of acting is hard to teach. You either got it or you haven't got it. You know, you, you, it's it's relaxing on screen is and becoming someone else on screen is something you either do or you don't do. And, what I, and, I, and I still do it now, but I do it mostly for theatre. I just finished doing some Harold Pinter in the West End uh, over Christmas and, and January. I, I did that. Um, I love doing theatre, most of all. I think that's the, that's what the greatest art form in acting. Well, it's true. I've had a lot of actors on the show who do TV, but they started off in theatre, and they miss theatre. The problem is, for them, there's not a lot of money in theatre. And theatre is so much more demanding because, you know, it's a performance every night. TV now and movies now you know, everything's digital. So someone doesn't have to know how to act. They can just cut the tape and put it together. So Yeah, it, I, yeah I mean, listen, I'm fortunate I can afford to do theatre because I get my money from music. But, uh, <laughs> but no, you're right. It doesn't pay for well, but it is the most satisfying thing, you know, to 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 sit in a room with a bunch of people and, and concentrate for, you know, six or eight weeks on rehearsing and working up a play and then, and then having the balls to get out you know, eight times a week and, and, and risk it in front of people is, is a really adrenaline rush. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, I do that and I play on, and I play on stage, you know, in, in the same way that I prefer playing live to being in the studio. I, I'd like that adrenaline rush. I mean, it's not a lot of difference between acting in a play and, and getting on stage and doing a two hour show with a rock band. The only difference is one has a fourth wall, the other one doesn't. Now, with Spandau Ballet, you know, you said you guys got back together, and then Tony left. What was the process for you guys to 
find a new singer? Because it must be hard because you have such a, you know, you're a legendary band, you're iconic, and, and people know you, and, and you guys have known each other, and you've gone through a breakup, and then you've gotten back together, and now Tony's out of the band. How did you start to start looking for a new lead singer? boys in the band said you know just Tony did Tony didn't want to do it for five years and, and a lot of people were thinking well time's moving on I'd really like to play live and um, so we thought about whether or not it would be possible to have another singer and um, you know we spoke about some big names famous names and didn't really work out and then um, we, we ended up looking at in musical theatre because we just thought well if someone from rock music is around the age of 30 and no one knows who they are then they're probably no good because uh, they haven't succeeded but 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 there are guys out there that have succeeded in musical theater that that have got an edge and so we auditioned a lot you know and uh, it was really about getting people around the piano and then getting people in front of the band where else we'd whittled it down and we ended up with ross william wilde who was this this great charismatic 30 uh, year old who's got an incredible voice who's um you know, he, he, he starred in We Will Rock You in Britain, and um, we thought he was very special, and we, we've done this short tour with him, uh, which he culminated in a show at the Hammersmith Apollo in London, um, and it went, it went very well. Um, we have no plans for the future. I, d I don't know what the future is with Spandau Ballet, I, whether that is just a moment that where or whether it's something that will continue with I'm, I'm i'm not sure i still struggle with um the idea of being in spana by tony not being in the band you know and um and i'd quite like <clears throat> so so I, i'm i'm kind of on hold at the moment we're all on hold no um, anyway I'm, I'm completely busy with nick mason so I was going to ask you how'd that come about. That must be that must be amazing. He's a, he's from Pink Floyd. I mean, as a musician, you must sit there and go, "Holy crap! I'm working with someone from Pink Floyd." Well, you know, I was a big Pink Floyd fan as a kid. You know, I went to see them play a lot, and uh, and and I was, you know, like like every kid. You know, I saw Live at Pompeii, and I had Relics, which was the old stuff. Um, I've been a friends with Nick for about fifteen years, and we've got a very strong mutual. One of my best friends is Guy Pratt, who took over from Roger Waters when Roger um, left, and, and and Guy became the bass player of Pink Floyd for years, and then he tours with David all the time. So I know the whole circle of people. Um, and this concept came from a guy called uh, Lee Harris, who was the um, guitarist from the Blockheads. Um, and he had an idea to, that Nick should go out, and, which we, he discussed with Nick, that he, we should, he should go out and play the early stuff because Roger and, um, you know, how, how, Roger and David both do all, all of the, the known Pink Floyd post-Dark Side of the Moon record, uh, hits. Um, you know, if Nick went out and did the same, he's, he's just yet another tribute band, you know, with, with 10 session players all trying to emulate David's guitar solos, lick for lick. And that's not really what Nick would want to do. He would get completely swallowed as the drummer. In any case, Nick's best period for drumming was all the early stuff, if you watch Live at Pompeii. You know, when he's using the mallets and that, you know, there's so much more tom-tom work in the early period. And the early period was kind of being underexposed. So he thought it was a good idea. He said, how about getting Gary in the band? And we went and had a few uh, sessions with a guy called Don Beacon as well, who, who played keyboards with the Orb. And it started to gel. And about a year ago, we did a friends and family show. And, and we do all the Sid Barrett songs. We did Set the Controls for Heart of the Sun. Everything up 
to before Dark Side of the Moon. So, it, but, but we don't have to emulate the music. We don't have to be like a tribute band and em- make it all. It's Nick. He's in the band, so we can develop the songs and make them into our own way. But we still have a psychedelic feel to it. There's a lot of sound effects, a lot of, you know trippy stuff and 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 as well as those great records something like emily play i never knew emily play as pink floyd i knew it as a david bowie song from pinups you know so i throw a bit of mick ronson in there as well but um and then we 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 did a few small small gigs in london there was a lot of hysteria that surrounded it and then we did a month's tour uh, across europe in um uh, last september and then, um, and now we're touring America, and uh, it's it's going down a storm. The review's been great. We're really happy. How has I mean, how has America taken to you? I mean, because you know everyone knows you, and everyone knows Nick. I mean, it's just something that when you well, get... I think there was some cynicism at first again about me, this guy from the Spandau Ballet. You know, could he play guitar? Could he sing? Could he do it? Could he? Did he have chops? And uh, and I and I, it's it, you know you got to put your neck on the line sometimes, and and I did, and it's and it's all been favourable so far. So I'm. I, I'm, I'm, you know, really thrilled to be in this group. It's fun. We make, we are, we are having fun every night. The audiences are freaking out because, you know, they've not heard a band. They've not heard Interstellar Overdrive and being done and fearless and, you know, Astronomy Domini or, or you know, that early stuff and um, see Emily play and Arnold Lane. They've not heard that from it, from the other two guys. So, you know, this is the opportunity. Um, you know, before the, before everyone's too old and it's too late to to go and witness it and it's going down a storm. So. We are we're going back. Uh, we're doing open air shows in Europe uh, in July. We're doing all that, some amphitheaters. Um, there's talk of, of recording and DVD, etc. And, and I think we'll be coming back to America next year. Now, are you still writing? Do you constantly still write, or have you put that on hold because you're yeah, so busy? I am. I'm actually. I've actually got a bit of a backlog, and I'm, which I'm trying to finish lyrically. I'm. I'm thinking strongly about my next record being a solo record. I did a solo record in 95 called Little Bruises that I'm really proud of. So it's still out there. Um, it's I, I mixed kind of all kinds of music. I had Irish folk musicians and jazz musicians, but it was really strong writing, I think, some of the best writing I'd ever done. Um, but then I, I, you know, I didn't continue down that road. And now I'm thinking that's actually what I'd like to do now. And I'm going to be 60 in October. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that's, I, I should be putting a solo album out again. And it, it doesn't have to be a big hit, you know, but it, it's, it's making music, isn't it? Exactly. Now, the doc, there was a documentary about Spandau Ballet. What was your input on that? Did you have any say in that? And what did you think about it? Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I was a sort of silent producer on that. Yeah, no, we were creatively involved all the way, you know. Um, it was a, an archive-only documentary about the band. But when I say creatively involved, I gave George Henkin, who's a woman, the license to do what she wanted to do out of the archive. I provided her with the archive, provided her with the storyline that we th- the, the true storyline of the band. Um, she had various sort of biographies from members of the group and she put together you know the film and i was absolutely thrilled by it you know and you know even though maybe the end of second act i'm coming out as the baddie i think i redeemed myself in the, in the third act um it's uh, i think she made a real great story arc out of it and uh no i'm 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 
you know, just as a piece of um, documentary evidence of an era, you know, I think, it, and, and, as, and as friend, it's about friendship, really, and how friendships can fail and then come back together again. I think it's a really strong work. It's called Soul Boys of the Western World, by the way. Yeah, I, I saw it. I, was, I found it on Netflix one night. And I put it up on uh, Facebook and I said, you know, because oh, everyone knows I'm a huge 80s fan. And I said, you got to watch this. And everyone was like, because there's stuff I didn't know, you know, the, your early days. You know, you, you sit there, you don't yeah. know a band. And it was great. Now, with the acting, you know, well, you got to act on Larry Sanders, which is awesome because Gary Shandling is just amazing. Yeah. But are yeah. you planning to do any more TV and film or are you just concentrating on stage? Um. You know, if, if no, I, I actually am. Um, I'm doing something for the BBC in the autumn um, with my brother, which is going to be a comedy, and um, we are, yeah, we are working on that right now. And um, and I'm really thrilled. It's with some really good writers, and uh, it's all about all I can say at the moment because we haven't written September, and I think that's probably going to be coming out at the end of the year, beginning of next. That must be great because you don't have to go on the road; you can stay at home. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I miss my kids when I'm on the road. Um, that, that's that's the real heartbreaker. That you know, we've been away for six weeks now, and I'm sort of aching to see them. My young family. I've got four boys. I've got one who's older, but I've got three young ones. And uh, you know, you just really miss them when you're away. But uh, you know, you there? Yeah, I lost you for a second. Okay. Um, so you said you, you'd like you, the road, you miss the kids when you're on the road, and the acting will be great. And now where are you playing? Uh, you're, you're going to a sound check? And is that where you, could you have a gig tonight? Yeah, we're gonna, yeah, I've got to go now. We're going to go to Soundcheck. We're playing Wallingford. Uh, I don't know when this is going out, but we're, we're moving up to... Um, we've, got some, we've got Boston, then we've got Montreal, Toronto. Then we're down. We're doing two nights at the Beacon next week. And, uh, and then Philadelphia and Washington, and then we're home. Right. Where are you playing in Philadelphia? Do you know? I don't. Actually, not off the top of my head, no. Okay, Sorry. And that's 10 minutes, 10 minutes from me, so I might come see you guys. Oh, hang on, hang on. Let me have a look. I haven't got it with me here. No problem. Um, when you look it up, you can look it up on the Source for we of Secrets website. Great. And um, and then um, 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 if you then text me, I'll, I'll make sure you're on the list plus one. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. You know, I'm a fan. And as I said, true, if you're an 80s guy, when I went to college, when that song came on at a bar, you found the cutest yeah. girl and you, you said, I got to dance with him. So it's funny. The song that's really, the song that's left as, I mean, obviously everyone loved that song's done so well for me. You know, everyone from, you know, Lil Wayne, our, you know, to Lloyd, uh, PM Dawn. I mean, so many people have covered it. Black Eyed Peas, and all they've used it on TV and film. John Hughes used it, 16 Candles, and it's been on The Simpsons twice, you know. But the song that's bigger in the UK is Gold. Gold is like the absolute smash anthem over there. Um, it, but over here, it's 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 true. If you go to Italy, they know us for Through the Barricades. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's funny how culturally different songs affect different well, it's funny. One, one thing I heard about True was it's been played over four, four million times in America, which basically is the equivalent of 22 years straight. Yeah, it's, it's coming up to five million now. Um, so uh, on, on the radio, I mean, obviously, that's nothing compared to Spotify. But, um, but for radio plates, that was that's, that's something that I'm very proud of. Yeah, I want to thank you. I know your website's under construction. Do you tweet? 
I tweet and I Instagram. Okay, Gary what's your J. Twitter? Kemp. Okay, great. Well, I want to thank you, people. Please check out uh, Old Spandale. Check out, check out Gary. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, and take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.